In today's Taiwan Insider, we're going to tell you why Taiwan is the top Asian tiger. I'm Andrew Ryan. I'm Natalie So. Let's take a look first at the stories that have been on our radar this week. China has announced 26 new incentives designed to lure Taiwanese businesses and talent. President Tsai says the move is aimed at promoting China's one country, two systems formula. Former Vice President Annette Liu has dropped out of the 2020 presidential race. She criticized the petition-based procedure that independent candidates have to complete to get on the ballot. She did not submit the signatures that her campaign picked up before the deadline. Migrant workers from Southeast Asia held protests on Saturday, calling for an end to the brokerage system many have to use to get jobs in Taiwan. Protesters called instead for a government-to-government hiring system. Taiwan's Railways Administration has scrapped a plan to equip train station surveillance systems with facial recognition software. The plan was pulled over legal and privacy concerns. And under the radar this week, a foreign national has been detained after trying to sneak in to the landing gear of a plane that was taxiing down the runway at Taiwan Taoyuan International Airport. The man had no ID on him, and there is no record of him entering the country. A notebook the man was carrying was filled with Russian writing, but he has so far not spoken to police or interpreters in any language. Now for our top story, Taiwan is top among the four Asian tigers. Top and third quarter economic growth, that is. Now, why has Taiwan's economy been able to grow despite the U.S.-China trade war? Let's take a look. The phones are busy at the Invest Taiwan office. The government office is busy helping Taiwanese businesses overseas to finalize plans to invest back in Taiwan. So far, Taiwan has approved 26 billion U.S. dollars in investment this year. That number could more than double by year end. Economics Minister Sun Rongjing said he expects total investment to reach more than 66 billion U.S. dollars this year. The government statistics office announced third quarter growth was 2.91 percent. That's first among the four Asian tigers. South Korea was 2 percent, while Singapore barely grew at just 0.1 percent. Impacted by mass protests, Hong Kong showed negative growth of 2.9 percent. Minister Sun said there are three main reasons why Taiwan's economy has grown the fastest. Taiwanese businesses are investing back in Taiwan. Some export orders have been transferred to Taiwan due to the U.S.-China trade war. The government has also increased domestic demand. Global companies are also marking Taiwan for major investment plans. Google plans to invest $850 million U.S. dollars to expand its data center here. Orsted also plans to invest $526 million U.S. dollars in offshore wind farms. Taiwan will need to keep an eye on the U.S.-China trade war. But building on Taiwan's strengths will be the key to long-term growth. Taiwan leads not only the four Asian tigers, but also the rest of the world when it comes to benefiting from the U.S.-China trade war. Now, a U.N. report has found that Taiwan has enjoyed the most trade diversion benefits of any country. Taiwan had 4.2 billion U.S. dollars worth of trade diversion benefits in the first half of the year, mostly in exports of office machinery and communication equipment. Mexico followed with 3.5 billion, and then the European Union and Vietnam at around 2.6 billion dollars. Now, as for the Asian tigers, there's four of them. 
How did these countries get grouped together and what are some of the reasons for their successes? That's the subject of today's Taiwan Explained. In today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to tell you about the four Asian tigers and some of the possible reasons for their success. Okay, you have one minute to do this, Andrew. Okay. Are you ready? I think so. Go. All right. The four Asian tigers are <laughs> South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. Now, they were inspired by the economic success of Japan after World War II and experienced rapid industrialization. Now, they maintained high annual growth rates of over 7% from the 1960s to the 1990s. Now, let's take a look at the difference in size and specialization. Now, Singapore and Hong Kong are smaller in population and area, and they're both global financial hubs. Taiwan and South Korea are larger, and they are world leaders in manufacturing electronics. Now, naturally, Taiwan compares itself with South Korea, as you can see from this Facebook post by the Premier last weekend. He says, we want to beat South Korea. We beat them again this quarter. It's got the economic growth rates of all four of the countries. And as you can see there in Chinese, we call them little dragons, not tigers. And there are many possible reasons for their success. But the big ones are state intervention, export-oriented policies, and some people even say Confucius could play a role. Good job. You didn't hit the buzzer. <laughs> <laughs> and now you did. Thank you. <laughs> I forgot. I was so enthralled by your explain. Well, thank you. Especially, what, tell me about Confucianism. How does that play a role? Yeah, it's really interesting. This is one of the theories about why the four places, the four tigers, um, could have been so successful in their economies. And the theory is that uh, Confucianism and the ideals of Confucianism, so like hard work, uh, stability, uh, respect for authority figures, those all gel really well with industrialization. However, there's one little caveat. Confucius, of course, was born in China. And at the time when the four Asian tigers were really uh, excelling in the terms of their economy, China hadn't quite reached, it reached its peak uh, in terms of economic prowess. So I, I think it's a little reductive to say that maybe Confucius is the Confucius reason. Confucius helped them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe he played a role. He played a role, maybe. All right. And that's our Taiwan Explain for this week. In today's Who in Taiwan, our mystery person wears many hats, and I'll be telling you about those hats. Now, on buzzer one, we have Andrew Ryan. And buzzer two, Leslie Liao. Are you guys ready? 60 wow. seconds to guess who this is. Oh, okay. Ready? Yes. This person is a novelist. This person's novel became a TV drama in 2008. This person finished writing the novel on toilet paper while in prison. <laughs> this person pioneered feminism in Taiwan. She was imprisoned for her speech on International Human Rights Day in Kaohsiung. She was a legislator and a Taoyuan County magistrate. She won. The, she was Taiwan's. Oh. <laughs> okay. I, okay. And, <laughs> I think you did it first. <laughs> former Vice President Lu. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> oh. Because you know all the other stuff about her. I didn't. I didn't know the toilet paper part. Definitely. <laughs> did you know that she wrote the, these three women? I did not. Okay, These so Three Women is a TV show. It's a show. novel, and it became a TV drama. Okay. She's so, one of the first feminists in Taiwan? When you said she was in prison, I did actually, she flashed through my mind. She's the first person that flashed through my mind. Yeah. Yeah, and she, she completed the novel in prison on toilet paper. Oh. Wow, that's amazing. So, and she's done a lot of things. Lawmaker, uh, Taiwan County Management, of course, the first female vice president. That's right, and also ran and for president. she was planning to run for president, but um, she decided not to run. 
this week by the deadline. She didn't turn in the signature she needed. Cards on the table when you said novelist, I gave up hope and I was totally ready. I was just like, oh, J.K. Rowling's in time. No idea. Do you know who went through my mind? I was who? thinking of our chairwoman. Really? Who's a, a, a well-known writer, yeah. So I thought you might like to learn something obscure about her. Yeah, that I not do. many right. people know about her. And that's Who in Taiwan for this week. In today's Taiwan by Number, we're going to talk about fruit exports. And we're going to start with guavas because we have some good news about guavas. Well, first, help yourself to some guava. Wow. This is a guava, by the way, Excellent. if you've never Don't seen them. Don't mind if I them. does. <laughs> Don't mind if I does either. Okay, so guavas are amazing fruit. They have a lot of antioxidants, which prevent diseases. They're good for your brain because they have um, vitamin Bs. They help you relieve stress because they have magnesium. And my question is about guavas. They're a very good source of vitamin C. So how many, um, how much percentage of our daily recommended dosage do you think they have? For a whole guava. For one guava, like about this size. This beautiful guava. <laughs> you have to eat some more to find out. <laughs> I'm going to say, my gut is telling me 65%. 65%, all right. I'm going to go with 80%. 80%. Okay, so let's take a look at the latest news about guavas first. A farmer is picking ripe guavas from the trees. These superfruits get packaged and sent throughout Taiwan. Zhanghua County produces more guavas than anywhere else in Taiwan. And now after 10 years of negotiations, they have a new market, the United States. This guava farmer says it's great because it's a whole new market for them. This farmer says it's very fortunate that they can export their guavas to the United States. Taiwan is only the second country that can export guavas to the U.S. The only other one is Mexico. But Mexican guavas are smaller and softer, so they're usually only used for juice and jam. Taiwan's guavas are crisp, tasty, and nutritious. They're likely to be popular in the U.S., but does that mean prices will go up in Taiwan? This fruit vendor says they definitely will. That's because the supply here will decrease. This vendor also says prices will go up. Zhanghua County says they'll export the high-quality guavas. If supply is low, local prices will go up. But they say some farmers won't be able to match U.S. standards for packaging, pesticide levels, and storage temperatures. So there should be plenty left for Taiwan to enjoy. You guys know that guava is good for your brain, so you should be doing well today on oh, the quiz. So what you're saying is finish the plate. Why don't you give me that one over there, those two, and that one on the shelf. I could use those. Trust me. Tastes good? Mmm, very good. Okay, so um, I asked you the percentage of recommend, uh, recommended daily dose of vitamin C that an average guava has, and you said 65% and you said 80%? Yep. Let's take a look at the answer. What? 280%! Whoa. Isn't that amazing? Yo. It's four times the average Why are we eating orange. <laughs> exactly, it's four times the average orange. So. Um, I think I got very close. Just short 200. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Okay, so guava is um, one of our newest exports to the U.S., very exciting news. Now, we are called the Kingdom of Fruits because we have wonderful fruits all, all year long. Mm. And I want to ask you, how many fruits do we export? How many types of fruit? How many types of fruits, yeah. Ooh, I'm going to say 10. 10, okay. <laughs> I'm going to say 
27? 27? Yeah. Sounds like a good number. <laughs> okay, let's take a look at the answer. 34. 34. Yeah. I didn't even know there were 34 different types Wait, of fruit. Wait, does that include different varieties of the same fruit? No. I didn't even know there were 34 fruits. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> okay, and we've had a very good year for fruit exports. Um, actually, in the first half of the year, we already surpassed our whole amount of exports of last year. Wow. So, now I'm going to ask you to guess the uh, number in U.S. dollars of the value of exports from January to September this year. How many U.S. dollars of food have we exported so far this year? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> I think we need about another case of guavas before we know this answer. I mean, I'm guessing it's in, it's not in billions, is it? Uh, I'm going to say uh, $100 million. Okay. Okay, I'm a little more optimistic. I'm going to go $2.7 billion. Wow. Uh, okay. <laughs> Let's take a look at the answer. 160 oh. million U.S. dollars. Only 60 million off. <laughs> <laughs> You're pretty close today, Doing aren't very you? Very well today. Up next, hashtag Taiwan. Leslie Lau is going to tell us what's trending in Taiwan. Hey, Leslie. Hey, guys. What's going on this week, Leslie? <sighs> I'm not sure you want this, Andrew, but have a music video first. All right, so that was a song by super popular Taiwanese singer Ah Mei. It's called Listen to the Sea. Now, unfortunately for everybody else, she's not the subject of this week's hashtag. Well, then who is? This guy right here, former New Taipei City Mayor Eric Ju and legislator Yen Kwanhung. Now, you're probably asking me, Leslie, what on earth do these two have to do with Ah Mei? <laughs> well, guys, if that couch has seatbelts, buckle up because this is what you're going to get. <laughs> There's a word for that where I come from, and that's called a doozy. A doozy. Anyway, yeah. that video was posted to Yen Kwanhung's Facebook page, and uh, in a preview post, he says that that was meant to draw attention to Longjing Li Sui Harbor in Taichung because. It's been affected by a lot of air and water pollution. That's where they are. Actually, you can tell. I recognize those smokestacks. That's the t the world's largest coal-burning power plant, isn't it? Okay. In Taichung. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've that's exactly what they're trying to play into, right? Because of the presence of that coal plant, the local waters have been affected and the local industry has been kind of tainted in a certain way. Anyway, that's all there is to it, but kudos to these <laughs> two for... <laughs> doing whatever that was and uh, if you want to listen to any version of them I'm gonna have the link in the description but that's about all the hashtag I can hash this week for you guys that, that, that's great Leslie I have to say I'm always impressed when people um, 
I don't want, should I say try to sing or is that mean to me? <laughs> I mean, you know, you have to put yourself out there. You it's know. very brave of them. Very we brave. admire their courage and I, their sincerity. And, and maybe, you know, the point is not being a great <laughs> singer. No offense, really. Um, but maybe that will help their cause. You know, if you're a really good singer, maybe people will just be like, oh, he's just, you know. I'm still trying to get over the hump of it's a doozy. You, know? <laughs> so, yeah. you guys are putting a lot more thought into it than I have. Well, thank you, Leslie. And that's hashtag Taiwan for this week. Do follow us on social media and leave a comment below. We'd love to hear from you. Now, as promised, we have a boba pizza face-off. Now, recently, Domino's and Pizza Hut came out with boba pizza. They took the boba from boba tea and put it on pizza. Mm. And RTI hosts Andrew Ryan mm-hmm. and Ellen Chu sampled them on their show, Feast Meets West. Let's take a look. Uh, we don't know which one this one this, is. This one looks like it's more simple. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have too much of the fillings. Mm-hmm. Okay, and has like boba sprinkled. Definitely weird to see boba sitting on a pizza, but thank God they did not use tomato sauce. This one looks like it has little bits of mochi on it. It has mochi, and then it seems like it has honey. Mm-hmm. Is it because honey? of the black sh- brown sugar? I think they drizzled honey off the top. I of know this. you. You taste honey too, right? Mm-hmm. And brown sugar. And brown sugar. That's actually pretty good. It's good. It's kind of like a dessert. You but know, it, you wouldn't eat this for lunch or dinner. It's just a dessert, okay? Shall we switch to the other one? Yeah. Have a little look. Ooh, this one's soft and mushy. This looks weird. Oh, there's meat. a lot more pearls on this one. Look at that. Pearls and meat. Okay. Man. Oh, Ooh. she's dropping it. Oh, don't tell anybody we did that. Mmm. <laughs> mmm. This one has cream drizzled over the top of it, and it has more of a tea flavor. You have. The other one didn't have a tea flavor. That's good. This is good. Which I like one do you this like? one. I like this one. I like the texture and the thickness and and the chewiness. And also, it's not too sweet. If I shut my eyes, mm-hmm. this tastes like a French toast. French toast. Right? Oh, Jew. French toast, right? When you put it like that, I would definitely get this one again. French toast. All right, do you want to know which one is which? Choose one first, and then I'll tell you which this one it is. This one. All right, that's also my pick, and that is the Pizza Hut version of really? the Really? Yes. So they were the one that did it first or? Second. Oh, wow. They followed in the footsteps of Domino's and they beat them at their and own they game. they beat them. Wow. <laughs> All right. Don't take it just from us. Go out and try it and see what you think. Uh, leave a comment below and let us know if you think we picked the right pizza or if we're cool. Yeah. Andrew, would you order that pizza again? Boba pizza? Uh, you know, I might order it with some friends. Yeah, I think I could do that. I kind of want some It's right a novelty, now. right? Well, you both have had it too. What did you yeah, guys think? I liked it. It tastes like dessert. I like the Pizza Hut one. It tasted more like dessert, whereas the Domino's, it had mochi on it, but it tastes more like pizza to me. Yeah. Reminder, so. pizza, not necessarily a good thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All righty. Okay. So you can check out Andrew Ryan and Ellen Chu's show, Feast Meets West, every week on the RTI English website. We hope you enjoyed this inside look at Taiwan this week. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Yes, and leave a comment below. We'd love to hear from you. For Taiwan Insider, I am Natalie So. I'm Leslie Leo. And I'm Andrew Ryan. We'll see you next week.
Taiwan Today with Natalie So. Taiwan recently saw 200,000 people come out for its annual gay pride parade. Now, Taiwan has been the host of Asia's biggest gay pride parade for the past 17 years. It was also the first nation in Asia to legalize same-sex marriage this May. Now, what country in Asia may be next? Well, today we gained some personal perspectives and insights from one of the most famous leaders of Taiwan's LGBT rights movement, Jennifer Liu, the chief coordinator of the Coalition for Marriage Equality. Soon after Taiwan legalized same-sex marriage in May, RTI host Andrew Ryan. Asked Lou about the LGBT rights movement in Asia and spoke with her about her own story. And actually, you've been a very public face of this movement. You've shared、yeah. your story multiple times. Yeah. Has that been difficult for you and your wife to、mm. kind of be the public face of this movement? Uh, sometimes, yeah,、mm-hmm. <laughs> and and you know,、um, being in public, use your own story. Sometimes, put a lot of pressure on your like personal life. Yeah, and, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah, but、um, because my wife support that,、uh, she's also an activist. So we try our best to like get more people to understand our stories.、Mm-hmm. But after a few times, we、uh, become more like、uh, we want more different example and different、mm-hmm. couples to be seen because we don't want people feel like oh we are the only <laughs> lesbian <laughs> couple in Taiwan, which is not true, right?、Yeah. Right now, I'm very happy. We are going to have a lot of lot of different stories, and and also some parents、uh, with LGBT children. They also、mm. willing to share their own story. That is, according to our research, Taiwanese society are are more happy to see to listen to par- our parents' voice.、Yeah. I think people are very interested to hear what older people have to say about、yeah. this, and I think they're very surprised to hear it when parents are supportive of their children,、yeah. as your parents have been. Yeah, my parents are very supportive, but it's、um, it's not. Very easy、mm-hmm. from the very beginning. We have been working on our like parent-children relationship for a long time. I came、mm-hmm. out, I think, when I was nineteen.、Mm-hmm. So right now I'm thirty-three. So it's been a, a while, a、mm-hmm. long time. And they try very hard to learn my life、mm-hmm. and my work. And um, and especially after my father retired. I can sense the the like society pressure become lower. Be- yeah, yeah. Because when yeah. he was、uh, in his very important career, need to take care of others. Yeah. Uh, uh, others' opinions. But right now, I feel like a relief, and he share a lot of my news、mm. uh, on like his line groups,、mm-hmm. and, and <laughs> it, it was great. I, I feel so grateful and privileged that to have them support. That's fantastic,、yeah. and actually, they say that for the parents, it's also a coming out process of, of sorts as well, telling、mm. their friends and, and other extended、uh, family members.、Mm. Now, I know you're going to get this question a lot.、Yeah. I feel bad for asking, it, but, <laughs> yeah, I, but I know you're okay with yeah, answering it.、Yeah. Uh, now that the same-sex marriage legislation has passed in、mm. Taiwan, I know you actually have already had a wedding banquet. Yeah. Back、It's、in two thousand fifteen, yeah,、right? it was a ceremony,、uh, inviting our friends and family to join.、Yeah. And that was after、uh, the Taipei City started allowing、um, same-sex couples to register their relationship. Yes, is that correct? yes, indeed. Okay, what what was that like back in two thousand fifteen? You think it'll be different from what we're going to see in the the coming week? 
you mean the the, the atmosphere yeah. in the society? Yeah. yeah, I think at that time, although we had a, like wedding banquet, mm-hmm. but everyone understands um, it's not the official yes wedding. Right. So it's kind of a blessing. It's a ceremony, but we don't have any legal rights yet at that time. Mm. So right now, I I, I think uh, there will be. Like more positive, and people can, um, people can just do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, for for example, to take care of their loved ones. Mm-hmm. That that is a very important thing for LGBT people in Taiwan. Mm. Will you be uh, getting hitched this week? <laughs> <laughs> Not this week because I have to work. <laughs> I need to make sure every couple can. Uh, can get married on Friday. Yes. So um, and for me personally, uh, I think the the most important thing is not if I can get married or not. Mm-hmm. We use our stories to like being an example mm-hmm. to uh, to educate the society. And so right now, um, every couples um, can get married in Taiwan. Mm-hmm. So I think it's not important for my personal uh, like. Personal life, if we can get married or not, but we will eventually, of eventually. course. Eventually, yeah. So I'm curious to know what do you think is going to happen in terms of the type of wedding? You had a very traditional kind of on the street in a big tent yes. wedding, a yeah. bando, as we say. Bando, they yeah. move the tables out. Yeah, um, and the, the chefs even cook just on the street. Wow, <laughs> yeah, wow, it's wow, a very wow. traditional very Taiwanese style banquet. Did you have a particular reason why you wanted to do a wedding like that? During that time, because it also uh, it was during my uh, my own like election campaign. Mm-hmm. So the first of all, we want to be seen in public. We don't want to hide in a you know a small room mm. or only our friends and family. We want to speak out like um, in public. Mm-hmm. Another thing is a lot of people say LGBT culture uh, is against uh, like uh, Asian traditional culture, mm-hmm. but we just want to like. Uh, proof that Asian culture and LGBT cultures, we can find a way to live in our country together. Mm. So I actually used the Taiwanese style a wedding banquet. It, it was one of the our strategy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, to to let people understand. Oh, this is what we can do, and we can also use our creativity to to do more in the future. Actually, I'm glad you touched on the Asian values part because you actually had a piece in the Washington Post which came out on May 21st, 2019. Congratulations! Thank you. <laughs> uh, and the title was "Taiwan's Same-Sex Marriage Law Could Change the Debate in Asia Forever." What can other countries in Asia learn from Taiwan? I think um, a lot of people,、uh, especially in Asia, they they are arguing that traditional culture, like what I say, against the LGBT concept. LGBT is. Like Western concept is not belong Asia, but I think Taiwan set up a very ex- good example that we we can and we need to find a way to live、uh, coexisted, and also because we are all Taiwanese,、uh, we don't want to be excluded from our own country from the mainstream society.、Mm-hmm. So I think other Asian country、uh, can use Taiwan as an example and find their own way. To、um, to to communicate with their own traditional culture and society, and of course, we are very happy to 
share our experience because in every country it's it's all different scenario. Yeah. Have you had interaction with uh, LGBT activists from other countries in Asia? Yeah, of course. We uh, we have been um, discussed about the different countries' strategy and our experience for a long time, especially during this two years. I, mm-hmm. I went to Japan, South Korea, uh, Bangkok, and also Indonesia, and also Hong Kong several different times during <laughs> these <Wow>. two years. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's, it was great that we can share our experience because I think we inspire other countries in Asia, their activists can see the hope here. Mm-hmm. Because Asia has been a long time, we are the only continent um, having legalized same-sex marriage for a mm-hmm. really, really long time. So. It's also one of the most conservative places in the world too. Yes, yeah. so I think Taiwan, we can lead the whole like continent to moving forward. Are you a betting person? I'm curious to know what country do you think will come next in Asia to pass same-sex marriage legislation? Mm, according to my observation, I think Japan and South Korea. South Korea actually a little bit difficult because they have like much stronger opposition compared mm-hmm. with Taiwan. They mm-hmm. had a really, really conservative Christian community there. Mm-hmm. But Japan, we are so looking forward to them because mm-hmm. um, they just launched a constitutional court lawsuit, I think a few weeks ago. Wow. And um, we have the similar culture and the similar like uh, the society atmosphere. So I, I'm personally, I feel like Japan might can have more opportunity in the future. But of mm. course, a lot of people think Thailand mm-hmm. might be the next uh, possible country. I've also heard Vietnam is a possibility as well. Yes, but um, in terms of the, um, as a very new democracy country, uh, we think you need to have a very stable political system uh-huh. to let the activists know how to, how to target yeah. yeah, who who you should lobby and who you who you want to communicate. I think as long as Vietnam can have a more stable uh, democracy system in the future, that is also possible for them. Mm. Finally, today I'm curious to know uh, what your thoughts are about the future and moving forward. Now, mm. as we have already mentioned in today's program, there are some issues with uh, the bill that has been passed. Yeah. Uh, for example, it doesn't include. Um, transnational relationships in which the foreigner comes from a country where same-sex marriage is not legal. Yeah. It also doesn't cover all uh, types of adoptions as well. Uh, Co-adoption. Co-adoption. Okay. So in other words, where both the parents are not biologically related to the child, that is still not legal. Correct. Um, Yeah. So what's the next push uh, for your group? Uh, of course, we are still need to fight for the full marriage rights, uh, include what you just said. Another thing is like what I say, I think uh, communicate with the whole society to uh, lower down the discriminate uh, percentage and situation in Taiwan. That is extremely important mm-hmm. because we understand once the law passed, a lot of people will be like forced to see same-sex couples they didn't see. <laughs> before. Sometimes people feel like a little bit uncomfortable mm. about that and they need some time to, to uh, adopt that. Mm-hmm. And I think it, it's great if the government or the more uh, NGOs 
can uh, put more resources on the social education. Mm -hmm. Another very important thing is we want to like uh, to work with other uh, NGOs to protect the Gender Equity Education Act in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. That act actually enact um, in 2004 and regulate uh, every student from elementary school to senior high school. You need to take at least four hours gender equality class uh, per semester. And what does that include? What is gender equality classes? What does that look like? Uh, it's not only about LGBT inclusive curriculum, but also about like uh, uh, just uh, ordinary gender equality, how to prevent gender harassment mm -hmm. and violation, and also teach uh, people to understand different kind of uh, gender orientation or uh, what's your gender appearance and your uh, to respect other difference. Mm. I think that is very important in modern society because Absolutely. we are in the global world. So you, you have different kind of diversity and a different di diverse community mm -hmm. in Taiwan and around the world. Like can actually empower our young people's like uh, acceptance and tolerance toward different people around them. But right now opposition also try their best to attack yeah. this In the act. referendum too, right? Yes. Yeah. So um, the act actually uh, has been our very important reason our younger generation support uh, marriage equality. That's a very important reason. So we really want to protect that policy and make sure uh, in the future we still can have more friendly uh, society in Taiwan. Well, once again, congratulations Thank to you, you and best of luck uh, yeah. moving forward and mm. pushing forth with uh, a greater change in Taiwan. Mm. Again, today we've been speaking with Jennifer Liu, who is the driving force behind the yeah. Marriage Equality Coalition Taiwan. Thanks for being with me. Thank you, Andrew. That was RTI host Andrew Ryan's interview with one of the pioneers in Taiwan's LGBT rights movement, Jennifer Liu, the chief coordinator of the Coalition for Marriage Equality in Taiwan. Thanks for tuning in to Taiwan Today. I'm Natalie So. John Van Trieste and the destination Taipei, the 1920s. Just next to Taipei's Old North Gate, a long stretch of thin metal barriers hides a historic beauty being turned into Taipei's next museum. Walk around to the front and you can get a peek at it. This handsome old building was once the headquarters of the Railway Bureau, the nerve center of Taiwan's rail network during a critical point in its development. Today, as trains regularly circle Taiwan, this building is a reminder of the era that set the island in motion. This upcoming museum is devoted, as you might expect, to Taiwan's rail history. 
It's the brainchild of the National Taiwan Museum. It isn't set to open until 2019, but since we've already had a peek at the front, we might as well get a peek at the history the new museum will be celebrating. The National Taiwan Museum's Lin Yihong is with us today to tell us about the network of trains that once ran from this building and the impact the rail system had on Taiwan. Taiwan's first railway was built in the late 19th century, in the final days of imperial Chinese rule here. Shortly after the line was completed, Japan took control of Taiwan, and in 1899, the Japanese authorities founded the Railway Bureau. At first, the bureau was housed in a machine works, a leftover reminder of imperial China's late efforts to modernize Taiwan. But by the 1910s, towards the end of World War I, the location's unsuitability began to show. Taipei was prospering, Mr. Lin says, and organizations in the colonial government were getting new buildings. The most famous of these serves today as the presidential office building. As work on that building was finishing up, some people in the railway bureau began asking for a new building of their own, too. The former machine works was just too small. They got their wish. Construction began in 1918, not far from the machine works, on the site of what had been a temple. Mr. Lin says the new building had an English-inspired design, with a first floor of brick and a second floor of timber. Expense doesn't seem to have been an issue. The timber used in construction was Taiwanese cypress wood, a commodity at the time, and a kind of wood that's still valued today for its soothing scent. The wood came all the way from Ali Shan in Taiwan's high mountains. At the time, logging on the mountain was still at its peak, and the mountain's rich stores of wood could be brought down easily thanks to a logging railroad completed in 1912. The look of the building is thoroughly Western, but if you look closely, there's more of Taiwan to the building than just the timber. An arched brick arcade on the first floor creates a covered walkway for pedestrians passing by, keeping them out of the sun and the rain. Though they don't build them quite as elegantly these days, covered sidewalks like this one are still a feature of Taiwan cities today. Mr. Lin says that by the time the Railway Bureau moved into this new building, Taiwan's railway system had grown. A Japanese-built line, finished in 1908, ran all the way down Taiwan's west coast, linking the most populous parts of the island from Keelung Harbor in the north to Kaohsiung Harbor in the south. It was far ahead of the short line that the Imperial Chinese modernizers had left behind, but the round-the-island rail loop of today was still far off in the future. An east coast route was only just taking shape, and the final link in the loop wouldn't be finished until the 1990s. The Railway Bureau did far more than just move people around. In fact, transport was only one of the Bureau's responsibilities. During the Japanese colonial period, it was the job of the Railway Bureau to see to it that Taiwan became the sort of place you would want to travel around by rail. The Bureau put out an array of maps, guidebooks, and brochures, and marketed Taiwan as a destination. The railway made everything simple. All you had to do to enjoy Taiwan was show up. 
铁道的旅行从铁路出现之后啊，就会哎，因为它会很方便的从这个地方。To make sure visitors were well looked after, the railway bureau also ran a chain of railroad hotels and railroad restaurants. During these years, Mr. Lin says the most luxurious place you could stay in Taiwan was at the bureau's Taipei Hotel. Taiwan's most luxurious restaurant was there too, offering exotic, fine Western dining. But even if not every place was quite as ritzy, Mr. Lin says that all of the major railway stations at least had a railway cafeteria. Tourists, many of them from Japan, rolled off the boat and onto the train to see the colony's sights. But the railroad was also having an impact on local Taiwanese culture that shouldn't be underestimated. 从这个, Different parts of the island were now much more easily reachable. Suddenly, a multi-day track between south and north could be completed in just a few hours. The railway also changed ways of thinking about time. Without accurate timekeeping, trains would crash into each other. A concern for punctuality spread into broader society, in part at least because of railroad culture. Where meeting someone at a certain time had once been a vague, inexact science, meeting someone at, say, two o'clock now meant meeting someone at two o'clock. Time was now important, down to the minute. The railway bureau managed the system that made these changes possible and kept it running. It kept on doing this through the 1930s, as war with China broke out, and into the 1940s, as the war spread across the Pacific. But the railway bureau didn't last. In 1945, the war ended, and after 50 years as its colonial master, Japan relinquished control of Taiwan. The beautiful timbered building did survive, though. And when the government of the Republic of China stepped in to assume control of Taiwan, they put their own railway authority in the same offices. The building continued to serve as the nerve center of Taiwan's railway network for many more decades. So when did the idea to put in a museum here come about? Mr. Lin says the ball started rolling in 1990 when the building was suddenly left without a purpose. The new Taipei Main Station had been completed, and it was decided that all of the files and all of the furniture would have to be moved into new homes there. The now empty railway building was not yet a protected site, and so there was discussion about whether to tear the building down and sell the land to developers, or to find some other use for it. It took a long time to decide, and even after a plan was put in place, progress wasn't fast. The building was declared a historic site in 1992. Then, in 2007, the National Taiwan Museum and Taiwan's railroad company agreed to work together on restoring the building. They had their work cut out for them. Mr. Lin says that as time went on and the number of offices grew, the space proved too small. Additions were put in, and other parts of the original building were torn down. Even the arcade for pedestrians was bricked in completely and turned into offices. But a goal had been set: opening up what had been an off-limit space and turning it into a museum celebrating the role of the railroad in Taiwan's history. They couldn't have found a much more appropriate place. So, what exactly is going to be in this new museum? 详细的
Mr. Lin is tight-lipped when I ask for details. He says that so far, only the first two stages of a six-part plan are complete. There still needs to be landscaping, interior installations, and a visitor center before the museum can open. This will be a national-level museum, he says, and planners are going to take the time they need to see the job done properly. But he will say that he's excited to see a valuable piece of Taiwan's history come to life again. I'm John Van Trieste, and I hope you'll join me again next week for another Journey Through Time. From a fruit market in Tel Aviv to a fish seller in Taipei, the people of our world are working hard to make a living. Are you listening? Tune in to the sounds of your world on Radio Taiwan International. This is Taiwan Explained, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. Today's Taiwan Explained, I'm going to tell you about the four Asian tigers and some of the possible reasons for their success. Okay, you have one minute to do this, Andrew. Okay. Are you ready? I think so. Go. All right. The four Asian tigers are <laughs> South Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. Now, they were inspired by the economic success of Japan after World War II and experienced rapid industrialization. Now, they maintained high annual growth rates of over 7% from the 1960s to the 1990s. Now, let's take a look at the difference in size and specialization. Now, Singapore and Hong Kong are smaller in population and area, and they're both global financial hubs. Taiwan and South Korea are larger, and they are world leaders in manufacturing electronics. Now, naturally, Taiwan compares itself with South Korea, as you can see from this Facebook post by the premier last weekend. He says... We want to beat South Korea. We beat them again this quarter. It's got the economic growth rates of all four of the countries. And as you can see there in Chinese, we call them little dragons, not tigers. And there are many possible reasons for their success. But the big ones are state intervention, export-oriented policies. And some people even say Confucius could play a role. Good job. You didn't hit the buzzer. <laughs> <laughs> and now you did. Thank you. <laughs> I forgot. I was so enthralled by your explain. Well, thank you. Especially, what, tell me about Confucianism. How does that play a role? Yeah, it's really interesting. This is one of the theories about why the four places, the four tigers, um, could have been so successful in their economies. And the theory is that uh, Confucianism and the ideals of Confucianism, so like hard work, uh, stability, uh, respect for authority figures, those all gel really well with industrialization. However, there's one little caveat. Confucius, of course, was born in China. And at the time when the four Asian tigers were really uh, excelling in the terms of their economy, China hadn't quite reached, it reached its peak uh, in terms of economic prowess. So I, I think it's a little reductive to say that maybe Confucius is their Confucius reason. Confucius helped them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> maybe he played a role. He played a role, maybe. All right. And that's our Taiwan Explain for this week.
Thank you for listening to Radio Taiwan International, broadcasting from Taipei, Taiwan. Check out our website at english.rti.org.tw. Again, that's english.rti.org.tw for the latest news and features from Taiwan. You can also listen to our programs and watch videos as well. Our 60-minute English language program can also be heard every day at the following times and frequencies. In southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. Again, that's in southern China and South Asia, from 1600 to 1700 UTC, on 9405 kHz. And in Southeast Asia, from 0300 to 0400 UTC, on 15320 kHz. Again, that's in Southeast Asia from 0300 to 0400 UTC on 15320 kHz. We'd love to hear from you. Please send your comments to P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Again, that's P.O. Box 123-199, Taipei, Taiwan. Or send an email to rti at rti.org.tw. Again, that's rti at rti.org.tw. Also visit us on Facebook. The address is fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International. Once again, on Facebook, we're located at fb.me forward slash Radio Taiwan International for videos, photos, and news of interest from Taiwan. Thank you once again for listening to Radio Taiwan International. Thank you.